Welcome to Jammin' with Jason Mefford, a show where we discuss topics relevant to chief audit executives and professionals in audit, risk, and compliance. We discuss the technical and soft skills needed to navigate the minefields of organizations. You hear best practices and practical advice for helping you advance your career, and we'll even talk about music, mindfulness, and psychology, because we can. So sit back and relax while you listen to the number one podcast in the world for internal auditors, unscripted and unedited. Well, hey, I am honored today to have Brian Ahern on the show with me. And uh, I, 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 I got found out about Brian actually through another podcast. I was listening to uh, David Averin's podcast and Brian was on it. And uh, when you when you hear about the topic today, you're going to see why when I listened to that, I said, I have to have Brian on this podcast. Okay. Um, so Brian is the chief influence officer at Influence People. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This will be an interesting topic. Yeah, it's a, well, it's an interesting topic because it's about influence, right? And so um, I, I, you know, became aware of, you know, Bob Child. I always mispronounce his name, Cialdini. Yep, you got uh, it right. Book book on influence uh, many years ago, and have actually tried to use that or incorporate that into what I'm doing because, especially now, you hear a lot of people saying, "Well, I need to influence people," and internal audit is no different to that. You know, they have to influence people as part of their job, and so I thought maybe we could start with because because I think it's kind of an interesting journey of how you got here, right? You're only one of the twenty people in the world that are you know, the experts to actually teach on this method. Um, and so maybe explain just kind of briefly, how did you get to that point to where now you're this world expert on influence? Okay. Um, it's always funny to hear somebody call me an expert. I'm <laughs> getting my wife and daughter to do things. But anyway. <laughs> hey, um, we all do. <laughs> um, I, I really bumped into Cialdini's work completely by accident. A former coworker at the insurance company that I worked for back in the early 2000s was studying for her master's at Ohio State, mm -hmm. came down, gave a video to my boss and I and said, I think you guys will really like this. I had been involved in sales training. And as I watched Bob talk about the psychology of influence, for me, the light bulb came on. It was like, holy cow, this explains all of the reasons the sales techniques work. It's the underlying psychology. And I was so intrigued by the scientific research because I'm analytical by nature, the applicability of what I was doing, and also Bob's stance on ethics, that he talks about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So I start using his video. Uh, I travel around, I show the video in our uh, training classes. We talk about the concepts, try to figure out ways to utilize those at the company. And he had done this presentation for Stanford, and so I signed up for Stanford's marketing. And one day I got a marketing a piece of marketing material from Stanford, and it had Bob's picture, bold letters in the headline that said, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. Oh, right? that's a bad word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's very clear about non-manipulative ways. The person who introduced him talked about non-manipulative ways. So I thought, well, either the... Um, <clears throat> copyright person didn't read or watch the video or they just don't understand anything about human nature because I emailed Stanford and I said in my email, 
I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated, nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That <laughs> word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. Never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang at work and it was a representative from Robert Cialdini's office calling to thank me personally on behalf of him. She said, you sent an email to Stanford and because of that, they're changing the marketing of our video and we wanted to call to thank you. And it was in that conversation that she said, if your company ever needs a guest speaker, Bob tra travels around the world and he talks about this. I said, I sit next to the woman who books our speakers. Would you like to talk to her? <laughs> and fate would have it. It was the summer of 2004 and he was in Columbus two or three times to address our top growing profitable insurance agents. And that's where I went through the two-day workshop and I had to stay on my boss for three years to get him to finally approve me going back to Arizona to get certified. But that happened in uh, early 2008 mm -hmm. and the rest is history. I've been um, teaching uh, Robert Cialdini's methodology of, of influence. I do it through workshops, keynotes, consulting, coaching, things like that. Um, and when I started doing it, I also had the long view of this is what I want to do when I leave my corporate position. And I made that decision last year to, to leave, and now I'm doing this full time. Yeah. Well, I think it's, a, it's an interesting journey, and I think it, you know, especially a couple things from your, from your story there. I love the fact that you kind of stood up and said, hey, Stanford, you got it wrong, right? You guys don't understand this if you're using the word manipulation. Uh, you know, because, because when I first saw this, you know, again, I think sometimes it may be to set the stage for people listening, you know, because again, it's going to be auditors and risk people and they're going to be thinking, what? I don't need sales or, well, let me tell you, you're selling every day of your life, right? I mean, when you're trying to, you know, convince or help persuade somebody to accept an audit recommendation, you have to influence them to get that done. Absolutely. But it's, it's that important distinction. This is not manipulation, right? It's not like you're trying to use some nefarious means to, to get what you want, but it's using psychology to really develop. I see it more as, as actually developing a real relationship with people. Um, as well, you know, as, as you kind of go through and, and do this. And so maybe you can kind of share because it's, th this is a book that's based on science. It's based on psychology and, and maybe just kind of explain a little bit kind of the principles behind it um, and, and how, because again, as you describe this, people are going to go, oh, so that's why they do that when I'm trying to buy a car or when I do. And, and so they'll start to see how there's the tie-in and lots of people are using this and we need to be using it too. So maybe, maybe kind of explain some of that. Well, first let me say this. When, when you talked about an auditor, for example, saying, well, I don't need that sales stuff. It's, it's not sales. I mean, we may talk about you are selling your ideas, but I use the word we're persuading. And <clears throat> I say that from womb to tomb, I mean, the moment a baby comes out, he or she cries. Why? Well, they can't say I'm hungry or I need to be changed. So they do what they can to convey they have a need because they want someone to do something. And then we learn language and we begin to learn other ways to, to do this. But the whole existence of your life, you are trying to get people to do things, trying to meet your needs. Mm -hmm. And that is an auditor. An auditor is, is having to establish relationship. They're having to get buy-in. They're having to get people to say, yes, we will, we will put these recommendations in. They'd like them to do it with less resistance. Mm -hmm. they'd, they'd like it, ideally, if they could wave a wand and it was a partnership, they'd like to do that. So 
they don't have to call it selling, but they are trying to persuade. Dan Pink, in his book, To Sell as Human, mm-hmm. cites a survey of more than 7,000 American business workers, and they were asked the question, how much of your day do you spend trying to influence, persuade, or convince people in ways that are not related to a sale? So they really weren't salespeople, and the answer that came back was 40%. Yeah. So they're spending more than three hours a day trying to influence, persuade, or convince people to do things. And I would imagine that auditors are probably a little bit higher than that. So let's say <laughs> 50% of their day, they are trying to get people to do something, change behaviors, change processes and procedures. They need to understand how to interact with people to make that happen easier and with less friction. Okay. Well, and I, I think the point that you made there is interesting too, because it's it's not, you know, and again, some people listening may think, obviously there's that relationship with the auditor to the audit client, but that's not the only relationship we're talking about here. I mean, these principles that we're talking about, you know, can, can work for, for a, a boss to subordinate type Absolutely. of relationship. Um, even your, you know, romantic partner relationship, other friends that you have, peers in the organization, uh, you know, lots of different people. And it's these same principles or concepts that we need to start incorporating into our life. Uh, because like you said, it, we, we have these, I love that we need to convey a need mm-hmm. and we all have needs and we have to be able to convey that and help persuade people to help provide us that need. Right? Absolutely. And, and I think what appeals to people when I get an opportunity to actually interact with an audience and I ask a question early on, I'll say, how many of you believe that much of your professional success depends on getting people to say yes? Well, everybody does. I mean, if you've been in business for any length of time, you know that, you know, um, prospects don't become clients till they say yes to sales proposals, great ideas of middle managers don't become projects till someone above them says yes. So you can go on and on. They, they get it, that they need to be effective there. But then when I ask the question, well, how about this? At home, isn't life a little more peaceful and happy when those around you more willingly say yes? <laughs> yeah. Like, nodding. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And so really what we're talking about is a 24-7, 365 skill. It'll help you at the office and that's wonderful. But man, if it helps you at home get along better with your spouse or your kids or your neighbors, man, that's icing on the cake. And you can't say that about every skill that you're taught in the business environment. Right. Yeah, how to how to prepare a spreadsheet doesn't help you in negotiating, you know, with your kids, trying to get your kids to yeah. pick up their room, right? And the spreadsheet won't come in handy with your spouse when you say, uh, let's review our relationship. <laughs> I've calculated a risk assessment. And based on this, I believe that we need to talk about these five things, right? Yeah, yeah you can't do that. Because all- I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what it would be, right? But, but, it, but it is, it's, that, it's the human level, yes. right, as well that we're getting at. And that's why we're talking about psychology, because again, it's, it's how we operate as humans. Yeah. And I think, again, as, as I've kind of gone through and thought about this and tried to incorporate it, uh, you know, the, the best that I can, and I'm always getting better every day at trying to do it better, is, um, you know, like you said, it's something that helps you 24-7, and, and it's really a way to help you understand. And sometimes the, the, the answer is, is different than what we would think, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're trying to get somebody to say yes, often, you know, we try to wear them down as an example, right? We'll just keep beating on them until they finally say yes, but that actually damages the relationship. 
Whereas if you actually understand the psychology behind it and you're using the principles of influence, you're actually strengthening that relationship as well. I mean, am I thinking about that right? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the tighter that relationship, the better the opportunity for future engagements, or if you've got a long-term contract, people, you know, if you're an auditor, they more willingly welcome you in because you've set yourself apart as different than auditors they've worked with in the past. So it is, it's, it's absolutely critical. And even more so anytime you're in a, a situation where you will continue to interact with those people. One and done, okay, maybe it's not as important, but the more you're gonna have an interaction, it absolutely becomes mandatory that you, build that relationship. Yeah. So, so maybe why don't we go through and, and, and kind of talk about, you know, I think there's six, six different principles, right? Um, and so maybe we can go through and, and talk now and kind of explain to us what these six areas are. Okay. Um, but I always like to try to keep things practical too. So, you know, maybe as we're going through here, we can kind of talk about kind of some practical application of this. Um, you know, in, in maybe both kind of a business and a personal type of thing. Cause like you said, this is, um, something that we can use 24 seven yep. as well. Okay. So let's, so we'll start, um, to even put this into easier to understand context. First, we'll talk about building relationship and there's two principles that are the ones you primarily want to focus on when you say the number one thing here is I want to build or strengthen a relationship. And those principles that we talk about are principle of liking and also the principle of reciprocity. Yep. So when it comes to this principle of liking, we define it this way. We, we say we prefer to say yes to those we know and like. Okay. Now some of your listeners might be thinking, okay, really? I mean, we all know that. Duh. <laughs> but what people don't always know is how do I, how, first of all, how important that is. But second, how do I actually make that happen? What is the most effective way for me to make that happen? And it's not that hard to get people to like you. Um, for example, Jason, when you and I find out that we have something in common, you mm -hmm. will like me a little bit more. Or if I pay you a genuine compliment, you will like me more. Yep. All kinds of studies show that. Human beings will implicitly like things or people that they see as similar to themselves. Right? right. You joke for the same team, gotta be a good guy. So have the same pet as me, oh, you're a good guy. Same car. So so we find that out or when we look for ways to pay you a compliment. But here's the key. You don't want to go into situations doing everything you can to try to get someone to like you because then you come across like a desperate used car salesperson <laughs> anything to yep. get that person to like you. Here's the thought process I would like the people listening to this podcast to focus on. Your thought should be, how can I come to like that other person? How yeah. can I come to, you know, if I'm an auditor, how can I come to like the people that I'm going to go in and start working with and auditing? How can I come to like, if I'm a, a chief audit officer, how can I come to like um, the executive board that I'm interacting with? It's not about trying to get them to like you. And here's why it's so important. Because when you sense that I truly like you, you implicitly believe that friends do right by friends. And when you start to see that, hey, Brian Ahern really likes me, you can see by the look of my eye, the smile on my face, tone of voice, when you sense I truly like you, you become much more open to whatever it is that I might ask of you because you're thinking, hey, he's going to do right by me. He's got my best interest at heart. And here's the good news, Jason. The more I come to like you, the more I truly do have your best interest at heart. 
I want you, you know, the people that I know and like, I want them to be happy and I want them to be successful. And so therefore it changes how I start interacting with them. And then you get this really positive mojo where they know you like them, you do like them, you begin working harder, they're more open to what you're saying, and that makes a world of difference. But it's, it starts with that shift in the mindset. It's don't try to get people to like you. Come to like the people that you're with. Well, and I think, too, don't try to be someone that you're not, you know, because that goes back to kind of that sleazy sales car sales, uh, car salesman, you know, sort of a thing, because you just have to be authentic of who you are. But even again, because, because a lot of times in audit, we'll talk about rapport building, right? Mm -hmm. when, you, when you go in and you're interviewing somebody or other stuff like that, where you're trying to, again, find ways that you're similar. So just again, simple example, because, you know, before we started hitting recording in the virtual green room, uh, you know, there were a couple things actually that all of a sudden we talked about, hey, yep. we both like scotch. Right. Uh, you went on, on, on some of the, you know, Scotland distillery tours. That's my goal for next year. Right. I heard you make reference to game of Thrones. So, Hey, you probably like game of Thrones. So do I. Right. Yeah. And those, those were just simple things of us just having a real human conversation. Right. But see, like you said, all of a sudden it's like, well, Hey, I like Brian even more now. He likes Scotch. He likes game of Thrones. Right. So do I. Right. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a great, great point is try to find ways to like them. Um, because chances are, it's going to be something you like too. And it's going to, it's going to come back to you. Right. So here would be simple advice for any auditor. Anytime I'm going to go speak somewhere. I, I did a presentation to a small group. There were only five people yesterday, but I connected with every one of them on LinkedIn beforehand because I wanted to get to know a little about them. I wanted them to get a little, to know a little about me. Also, when we talk about authority, about my expertise, but, but that's an opportunity to connect. And, and I always remember, um, there was a young guy that when I met him for the first time, I got to the coffee shop early. And so I'm on my phone and I'm looking at his LinkedIn profile and I see that he knows two people who are very significant in my life. So before we started talking about anything, I said, how do you know Todd Alice? And he said, oh, he was the principal at the high school where my wife was a teacher. And he kind of went on. And he goes, how do you know him? And I said, he was my high school football coach. And we yep. talked about what an impact this individual had. Totally changed the, the, the tone of everything into a super positive. I mean, because we both had such admiration for this person. Any auditor could do that. Any auditor could get online and look at the, the main people they're going to interact with and try to find out who do they have in common, where they go to school, what has been their job history, if they worked at any of the same places. Maybe they could take it a step further and go on, on Facebook if it's somebody really important. Try to find them just so you can have those natural conversation starters where you can both feel good about who you are and how you're similar. Yeah. Yeah, so you can do it through things like LinkedIn or what I'll, what I'll tell people sometimes too is when you walk into somebody's office, you know, look, look around what's in the office, right? Because again, you're probably going to be able to find something in their office that you can have an affinity towards or start a conversation about. And, and once you establish that, then it makes it easier for whatever else you, you're happening to talk about, right? We always talk about looking around. People are going to hang pictures and have things out that remind them of good things. And if you can either connect on that or just ask them, about what it is that they love doing, they feel good, they transfer that to you, and you're off to a good start. Yeah. 
So that's our liking. So, so like you said, to, in developing relationships, the two that we think about is liking, which we've talked about now kind of. So reciprocity, maybe explain that to people because that's, that's one too that, that um, th th there's different meanings behind reciprocity. And so this is more like the general reciprocity uh, part of it that, that I think a lot of people um, maybe don't realize is there, even though that's like the original meaning of what we should be doing. Um, so, so maybe kind of explain that and how that term works. So we, we, when we're teaching about the psychology of influence, we talk about reciprocity and define it this way. People feel obligated to give back to those who first give to them. Okay, so that's a heavy word, obligation. But social psychologists are in agreement that every human society raises its people in the way of reciprocity. And all we need to think about are probably some of the first words that you learned as a child, or maybe I did, or your listeners. And those words were, thank you. Mm -hmm. when someone did something for us mom or dad leaned down and said what do you say and we'd say thank you and, and you just begin to understand that life goes so much better when someone does something that you do something in return and it may be as simple as a thank you but you know what people want to do nice things for little kids who are have good manners and say thank you so then as we get older we just learn more sophisticated ways to repay the favor so to speak yeah but the beauty about reciprocity is when you genuinely help people, it's not like you've given away and you don't get anything out of it. You now have an opportunity, if that person is the right person with the right skill set to help you in the future, to go back to them and ask for their help. And they're probably very willing because you've done something for them first. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not about having, excuse me a second. It's not approaching this with a give to get mentality. Right. I'm, I'm not doing this podcast, Jason, just so I can get you to do something. You asked, I love doing this. This is going to help you. But if, if sometime down the road, I'm thinking about, gosh, I need help. And I think, wow, you're the right person. I'll feel very comfortable going back and asking you because I've done something that helped you. And you'll probably feel really good about getting your chance to help me. Yeah. That's how life best. So we, we avoid that give to get mentality. It's just give and trust that people will help you when you need it. Cause see, and I, I think that's the, that's the switch that a lot of people need to think about. It's <coughs> the way that reciprocity is talked about here is, is, is like the pay it forward kind of concept, right? You help, you give without any expectation of any sort of reciprocal tit for tat quid pro quo kind of thing. Um, because, because that's, again, that's authentic. And, and you can't wait. Cause sometimes I hear people say this, well, I'll do that for them when they do this for me. And it's like, eh, that ain't how it works, right? You've got to actually trust. You've got to be willing to actually do something and with, without the expectation that it's going to come back or that it will come back in exactly the way you think it should. Um, but yeah, as we've, as we're developing our relationship, you're doing something that helps me and my listeners out of course, I'm going to be much more willing because I like you too, right? Because we've already established that. So between us, we already have the liking and the reciprocity. So it, it, it just deepens our relationship and makes it easier for anything that we may do together or need of Absolutely. each other in the future. And, and when we help each other, that is also building relationship, right? Because we naturally want to be around deal with people who have been helpful to us in the past. So that's why we say these two principles are especially good. If someone goes into a situation and says, above all else, the most important thing right now is for me to 
either establish a relationship where there is none or enhance the relationship that I already have because it will just make it easier and smoother if that person likes me and I like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So perfect. So that's two, that's two of the six. Oh yeah. Let me share one other thing. Cause this is so pertinent to auditors. Um, depending on, on the situation they have, I'll use a sales example and I think they'll be able to relate to the things they ask for. Um, there are studies that show when you ask somebody to do something and they say no, if you immediately come in with another request, you moderate your request a little bit, you come in with something a little bit less, the likelihood of them saying yes goes up rather dramatically. Because psychologically, if I ask you for something and you say no and I change my request, you perceive consciously or subconsciously, hey, Brian's giving a little, he's conceding, he's moderating, maybe I should give a little, concede a little, moderate a little. Mm-hmm. And so what salespeople make a mistake sometimes is they don't make a second ask or they go into situations and they say, oh, you know, Jason will never go for this and they lower their expectations. Yeah. Or, or an auditor might go in, well, they're never going to say yes to, to this particular thing we're going to ask them to do. No, go in you know, you've established your relationship, make a case for what it is that you think they need to do. And if there's pushback, be ready in the moment to say, well, if you guys can't do that, would it be better if you did this and and give them that second alternative? Because there becomes a high likelihood of them saying yes, and certainly a better likelihood of yes than if they started with that lower request right off the bat. So that's really important. I think for auditors to understand, because in a sense, they're making a sale. Will you do the things that we're putting out there on the table? Well, and it's interesting because it ties back to kind of the whole anchoring kind of an idea too, like from a sales perspective, you know, like if we were talking and I uh, just throw something out like, well, it's not like it'd be a hundred grand. I mean, that would be like way too much money. Right. And then later when I come back and it's 50 grand because I've anchored that or kind of thrown that out there, if you will, as kind of a first thing, 50 sounds a lot more pleasant than a hundred. And so, like you said, you know, you can, but I like that point is be ready. And and I think this is too, where sometimes auditors put out the thing and they get told no, and they're like, damn it, you're going to do it. Right. And so then they try to like push on it instead of, you know, being smart and thinking about it and actually having something in their back pocket uh, to be able to get that. Yes. On the second ask. Um, you know, and, and when you were talking about how they're like, darn it, you're going to do it. Three things stood out to me when I was thinking about our conversation today when it comes to auditors. I've never been in an auditing department, but I worked for a large company that had its audit department. And so they were internal and people pretty much knew them, but they still faced the same things that I think a lot of the auditors that, that listen to this podcast would face. First, you are seen as disrupting my day. You're mm-hmm. going to make more work for me. I have all this stuff. I'm already working overtime. Now I got to stop what I'm doing. I got to give you stuff. So, so here's, here's friction. Then the next thing is you're going to just probably tell me what I'm doing wrong. And nobody wants to be told what they're doing. <laughs> oh, and, come on. Really? <laughs> third, third is you're going to force me to change and nobody likes to be forced to do anything. And, and that's why it becomes so much or so important for them to understand these principles to try to overcome these, these three, or or at least my experience says they're high, high on the list. And if we end up talking about persuasion today or at another time, setting the context to to make people more open is going to certainly be really, really important for an auditor, just like it would be for a salesperson. But, but they need to realize that 
that I know they're doing their job and they might be thinking inside, I'm here to help. But that's it's always about how you're being perceived. And you can't change the other person. So what are you going to change about yourself and your approach to try to get them to say, oh, maybe this experience with an auditor will be different and better than it's been in the past. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And using these principles is going to help you get there. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so if, you, if you're working on the relationship, probably focusing on liking and reciprocity, we said, is, are probably the two that are most important. So let's kind of go through now and talk about the other four. Do, do they kind of lump together as well into? Yeah, so there's a, a couple others that, that we talk about, particularly when you're trying to, in sales, overcome objection or if people are unsure what they need to do. The next two that you'd want to tap into are the principles of consensus and the principles of authority. So we'll start with consensus. Consensus, sometimes it's, it's called social proof. Um, we call it consensus. But it, the gist of it is this. We look to other people mm -hmm. to see how we should behave in certain situations. Human beings are, in a sense, wired to follow the lead of other people. What are people thinking? What are they doing? How are they feeling? How are they acting? Because that all impacts how I think, what I feel, what I do, how I act. Um, and the reason that that's the case, if you think about the evolution of the human being, if we go back 15,000 years, let's say, and we're out in the woods and we're a small tribe and there's a rustling off to the side and a few people look nervous and they get up and they start running. If I stand up and say, wait a minute, guys, might be nothing. Let's go check it out. Mm -hmm. It might be that one time. But if I do that continually, it's very likely that at some point I encounter something bad and I'm done, <laughs> which means my genes don't get passed on. So whose genes are being passed on? Those who recognize being a part of a group, their safety in numbers. And it's still today deep in our subconscious that we feel comfortable following the lead of other people. And, and I've had people who really push back on this because America is a very individualistic society, and I've had people say nothing great ever occurred by following the crowd, and, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, there are people who will go against the grain despite how it feels, and they'll create great things, but here's the reality, Jason. Most of us aren't trying to do that in our day-to-day -day life. No. We're trying to get along. We're trying to, we're trying to get our projects done. We're trying to advance the agenda of the company, and quite often, it's the case that when we look around, following the lead of other people is usually the right thing to do. So the other thing I would say about this is the, the more granular an auditor could get, the more they could talk to a, a current or potential client about clients that they've dealt with who are just like them. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if they're working with, with somebody that's in the financial industry, they want to talk about clients who are in the financial industry. And if they can tighten it down to banks, then they want to talk about banks that they worked with. If they can get it tighter to, we've worked with mid-level banks, not, not you know the giant corporate banks, but the mid-level. And here's what they found and here's what they did. and Here's the success they had because they took the recommendations. All of that starts making that current or potential client say, if it worked for them, probably it worked for me. Yeah, yeah it, it lets them kind of relax down, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's the same thing almost with, you know, testimonials kind of work that way from a sales perspective or other, other ways too, right? Is it's like, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't trust me, you know, go ask Bob or, you know, whoever else um, because they've gone through this same thing. And so that's why, you know, because I, I like the idea of, um, you know, if you move to a new city, so you have to find a new doctor, Right. 
how do you find a new doctor? You don't go to the yellow pages and just start flipping through and just pick, pick, right? You ask your friends, right, to get this social proof or consensus from people. Oh, I've been going to Dr. Jones for years. He's great. And you talk to somebody else and they say, oh, yeah, Dr. Jones is great. It's like, okay, well, there's two people already that have given me that consensus. So I'm going to give Dr. Jones a chance. Right. And, and you'd be smart when you meet Dr. Jones to say, I talked to these three people and they all raved about you and Dr. Jones is feeling good and he feels good about you and them and <laughs> everybody wins. And it's all, yep. all true. It was all true, right? And yep. yet sometimes people don't think about it. It's those little things that can lead to big differences. Yeah. So that's kind of the consensus. So how does how does authority come into this? Because again, I think that's a word that you know a lot of people throw out there, but, but I, I wonder sometimes if they kind of mis, misunderstand it and especially kind of in this technical space, because I get a lot of people that, you know, I've got alphabet soup credentials behind my name. I've got like 20 different certifications. Does that actually give me authority or what does it re- actually mean to have authority? It's well, it, first of all, the, the, uh, designations sometimes like many other things, uh, too much is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I know the industry that I came from insurance, there's all kinds of certification and designations you can get. And I would hear a lot of senior executives who'd say, you know, I see more than two or three certifications behind somebody's name. And I'm like, you're spending too much time studying and not enough time working. Theoretical. So it can actually, even though it does build your knowledge base, at least displaying, it can actually hurt. But displaying some can help. So the other day when I was speaking and I started my talk and at the end somebody said, you know, I saw the letters behind your name and I knew what this first one was, but I didn't know the other two. But I thought, well, you're continuing your education. And what they were acknowledging was it was a very positive thing. So that's a subtle thing to convey authority. But let's define authority first. Authority, we define it as when we're making decisions, we look to people who have superior wisdom or expertise. We just feel really comfortable when somebody that we view as an expert tells us what to do. And that's why we usually go to the doctor when we don't feel good. We call an attorney if we have a legal question. Um, You know, we could self-diagnose online. We could look up legal Zoom and try to find our answer. But Mm -hmm. it takes us more time. It's frustrating. And it usually ends up being worth the time and money to pay them and feel comfortable like, oh, an expert told me what I need to do. So... When we talk about authority, I don't want people to think it's authority, meaning position. I'm the boss. You're the employee. You have to. No, you don't need positional authority when you really understand influence and how to interact with people. In fact, you think of people like uh, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. They they didn't have positional authority when they changed the world. No. It was that authentic power that really comes from... Uh, you know, and, and so like you said, this authority doesn't mean positional power. Right. It means people actually seeing you as credible and wise. Exactly. And they usually are going to get that from having experienced or worked with you, right? I mean, if, 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 if you go to a doctor and at first you view them as the authority, but then they say some really crazy stuff or they put you on some medication that makes you go off the deep end the other way, then all of a sudden you're going to start to question their authority Absolutely. as well, right? Versus like our Dr. Jones example, maybe, you know, for 30 years, this person's been going to Dr. Jones and he's been great. Well, the doctor is going to give him some 
authority, but it's it's the fact that he's delivered consistently that really gives him that that authority. So when 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 you have an intrinsic authority that goes with you anywhere you are, as an example, Martin Luther King was as much an authority on civil rights sitting in a jail in Memphis as he was when he was marching the streets in in Alabama, um, because it didn't matter where he went. It wasn't based on his title. And so when we as individuals continue to build our own personal credibility and then how we interact with people, it wouldn't matter where that auditor is working. If he or she has that personal credibility and they can display expertise during their conversation, it becomes easier for people to follow their lead. And let me give you a a funny story, but it highlights the truth of this. Um, I mentioned before we got online here that my wife is a really good golfer. And when I say really good, when she plays well, she'll shoot in the mid to upper 70s. She's really, really good. That's pretty good. Um, And many years ago, I came home from a sales training event, and I told her about this golf example I used in the training. Now, I won't go into what the details were, but just know that I told her. A few weeks later, she's reading a book golf book that I'd given her and she said listen to what Corey Pavin says and for your listeners who don't know who Corey Pavin was he won the U.S. Open in the early 90s he finished in the top five in all the majors he was a great golfer she begins to read this paragraph and I said I told you that she said (laughs) said, no you didn't and I said yeah a couple weeks ago I came home from the training session remember and no and I go come on we were sitting right here we were eating dinner and She had no recollection of me telling her that. So I said, oh, if Corey Pavin says it in quotes, then it's probably true. But when I say it, it's not. But here's the reality. Because he was an expert, she believed it. It sunk in. It meant something right away. Me was in one ear and out the other because I'm her husband and I'm a bogey golfer. (laughs) So so here's what I want your audience to remember. The, The words that came out of my mouth were, every bit as true as the words on the page that Corey Pavin wrote, but she believed him and not me. And if if an auditor is not viewed as having some kind of expertise, then he or she will not be listened to as much as somebody else who has some expertise. It's incumbent upon us to, to either make sure we get our credentials in front of us. So people go like, wow, you know, this guy or this lady's really got some schooling or some experience, something that says you're probably darn good at what you do. And then the other thing is cite the sources for the things that you're asking. If I just tell you to do something, Jason, you may or may not do it because we have some relationship. But if I tell you according to, and I give you this source that's credible, it means so much more, you know? So, so we learn these things quite often from very reputable sources, then we fail to bring them into our conversation. Those are two simple things that could really help an auditor by using consensus and authority to move the agenda forward, to take it out of the realm of should we or shouldn't we do this? Yeah, well, so like in this example, right, that you just gave with your wife, because you said it, but she doesn't view you as an authority in golf, right? Exactly. She, she just didn't even hear it. But when Corey says it in the book, right? Then it's a big deal. Now, if instead, if you had just read the book or you said, Hey, Corey said this, she would have remembered what you said because you're citing an expert that she has respect for. Exactly. And, and, and I will say in my defense, Jason, she's not that much better than me. She beats me by like one stroke a hole. So it ends up being, (laughs) it's like, that's like 18 strokes though. Yeah, well, both of you guys would have me beat in golf. (laughs) 
Okay, so we've gone through liking, reciprocity, consensus, and authority. So what, what are the last two that we, that we need to talk about? And does it relate, you know, like we said, liking and reciprocity kind of relates to the relationship. Helping to overcome objection is where, you know, authority and consensus comes in. What, what do the other two really help with then? So the, the last two help with getting people to actually move ahead and take some action. Take action. And the principles that we talk about for that are the principle of consistency and the principle of scarcity. So we'll start with consistency. Mm -hmm. um, we define it this way. We feel this internal psychological pressure, but we also feel an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and do. And, and to boil it down for your listeners, just remember this word and deed. Human beings, a big part of our makeup is avoid pain look for pleasure. And we feel better about ourselves when we do what we say and we know we look better to other people. We avoid the bad feelings that come with not keeping our word. In fact, when I ask audiences, have you ever given your word to somebody that you'd be somewhere or do something with them and then you had to back out and your reasons were legitimate and your friend understood and everybody's had that. And then I say, give me a word and how you felt. And they're always heavy words like guilty, awful, terrible. Well, nobody wants to feel that way. So what do we do? We work really hard to try to make sure we keep our commitments. And, and that's, what, that's why I say word and deed. If your listeners just remember word and deed, they'll think, oh yeah, look, people work really hard to make sure that their words match their deeds and their deeds match their words. Yep. Now, because it's, it's one of those things, you know, like, uh, you know, some of the sayings of, of, I can't hear what you're saying because what you're doing is so noisy or so loud. You know, right, that your words have to match your deeds because um, people are going to remember what you did, not what you said yes. anyway. And, and, and it, it only takes one mistake there for people to go, oh, you're a hypocrite. You know, you've been saying this all along and then I saw you went and did this. And, and, and we do have to give a little grace. People make mistakes and nobody can be perfectly consistent all the time. But but know that the people you're interacting with, you know, if I'm an auditor, again, I know somebody like you, Jason, you're, you're probably feeling that pressure to keep your word. So here's the key. Can I get you to commit to me? When I tell you what to do, that's not invoking this principle because you haven't given your word. So you don't feel this internal pressure to, to be consistent. But if I say, Jason, will you, and I ask you something and you come back and say, yes, you're going to start to feel that internal pressure and your likelihood of doing what I need you to do is way better than if I would have told you what to do. And, and yet people fall into that trap all the time because they were probably raised by parents who told them what to do. They worked for a boss who told them what to do. And so it's just natural for them to tell people what to do. But if they'll just take a step back, take a breath and think, how can I put this into a question to try to get that person to commit to me, the likelihood of them getting those people to do things goes up very much. Well, I think it, it's almost kind of like the reverse. I mean, when we were talking about, um, uh, uh, anyway, I can't remember. with, with the consistency, cause this was the other thing too, is it's about helping or getting people to kind of say yes, right. Or making a commitment and that we are consistent in both our word and deed. And so, you know, again, like you said, instead of telling somebody to do something, if you ask them or, you know, ask them a question and they say yes, or you ask them to do some little thing, then as you start to ask them for bigger and bigger things, 
then they're going to be more likely to actually do it because they're used to saying yes to you. They're used Ooh. to keeping your the promises to you. And so again, over time, I, can't, I remember that it was, it was a thing, I think it was about political signs that I remember from, from this topic in the book, right? That if, if they, if they got people to put like some simple little piece of cardboard in their window or yeah. something like that. And then, you know, that was a small ask that then got to a bigger ask of like a political sign in their, when in their yard or something like that. But it, it's, it's, it's kind of in that consistency of, again, you're showing up, you're, you're set, your words and your deeds are accurate and people feel like they're saying yes. And they're deciding to you instead of you telling them what to do. Yes. We will self-generate reasons for why we do what we do. And to your example of putting the little placard in the window that took a step forward. It was a study done about driving safely through neighborhoods and the sign said drive safely. And when they came back later and said, people were still driving too fast through the neighborhood, would you put this larger unsightly sign in your yard? 76% of the people were willing to do that because they self-generated their reasons to believe driving slow through the neighborhood is the right thing to do. You know, elderly neighbors, kids, pets, and things. When they had just made the outright ask before where they didn't start with something small and just said, would you put this in? It's about driving safely. I think it was 17% of the people said yes. They had no time to self-generate their own reasons. So sometimes the proper way is get someone to do a few small things. They get moving in that direction. For an auditor, get people to take those small steps. They see that what you're asking really isn't as difficult as what they thought. So it becomes easier to do some of the other things down the road. And maybe if the last thing they're going to do is takes a lot of time and effort, it, it's okay because they've kind of built this momentum. They're in a rhythm now, and it's only natural for them to continue to comply with those requests. Yeah. Well, and you're building the relationship along the way too. Absolutely. Right? Which, which, which also kind of fits into all of this mm -hmm. stuff too. So I said one of the things, though, that, that, that stood out to me about an auditor is, you know, forcing people to do things. But when you ask, they have freedom. So here's, here's another key. If I'm an auditor, Jason, and I need you to do something, and, and, and I need this by Friday, it's a big fail for me to say, Jason, I need you to do ABC by Friday. Because one, I've told you. Two, you may be under some kind of time pressures and you can't get it done by Friday. Then what do I do? Mm -hmm. Much better to say, Jason would you be able to do ABC by Tuesday? Because I want, to, I want to give myself some fallback positions, right? If you say yes, great. If you say no, going back to reciprocity, I'm ready to concede a little bit. I'd say, I understand, Jason, I realize you're busy. This is a hassle to deal with an auditor. Is there any chance you could get it to me by Wednesday afternoon? And even there, if you still said no, I still have fallback positions to Friday. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood that you're going to say yes at some point is much better than if I tell you what to do and I start with Friday and you say, no, I can't do it. So, you know, if I ask you, can you do this by Tuesday? You start searching your memory back. Can I do what's going on? You're looking for ways to figure out how to do it. But if you can't and I come back, now I'm a reasonable guy. I'm not forcing you. I continue to ask. I need this done. I'm trying to work with you, Jason, right? You see how that's a much better relationship with somebody mm -hmm. than just telling them in a, in a very logical, unrelational way? Well, and I, and I think just, just that, again, it's just this slight twist, right? But even again, like a boss to subordinate kind of a relationship, right? Um, you know, for people to actually start implementing right away, instead of going to, to, to the person and say, I need this by Friday, get it done by Friday, right? It's, hey, I need some help with this. Would you be able to help me with this? 
And do you think you could have it back to me by Wednesday? Right. It's you're, you're still accomplishing the same goal, but the relationship and the whole way that they approach it is totally different. If, if again, we're asking the questions and making it so they're the ones saying yes, instead of being told what they have to do. Yes. So, so they just need to think about what is it I need them to do and how can I ask and when do I need it? You know, but what would be the ideal time? I mean, ideally, if they would give it to me Monday, that would be awesome. Why not ask for Monday then? Mm-hmm. And they know that that is going to make the whole, the whole process of asking much better than saying, I need it by Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a simple thing that people can do. So our last one, as we're kind of wrapping up here, scarcity. So yes. maybe describe, describe scarcity to us and how does that kind of show up? So scarcity, we define it this way by saying we value things more when they're rare or diminishing, when they're going away. Um, a word I like to use to get people to remember this is FOMO, fear of missing, fear out. Of missing out. Yep. Um, human beings are, are naturally driven to avoid risk and they will prioritize that over gaining something every day of the week. In fact, a man named Daniel Kahneman, who was mm-hmm. a psychologist, won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work with his late partner, Amos Tversky, where they statistically proved human beings feel the pain of loss anywhere from two to two and a half times more than the joy of gaining the same thing. So, you know, Jason, if you go to the grocery store this afternoon and you get out of your car and you look down as a hundred dollar bill on the ground and you have no idea who it belongs to. So you're thinking, Oh, my lucky day, put that hundred dollar bill in your pocket. And then you get home and you tell somebody, wow, I found $100. And they go, no way, get out of here. And you reach. I lost $100. <laughs> and it's gone, right? Yeah. You, you will feel a lot worse than however good you felt when you found it. Yep. And, and that drives, that, that is, social scientists theorize this has helped humans survive over the millennia. Because if you had an abundance, that'd be a great thing. But if you didn't have enough, that could be the difference between life and death. And the, and the people who were more in tune with what they might lose tended to be the ones who survived. And so it just continued to pass the genes on. So as an auditor or any person, really, you need to understand how can I frame what I'm going to ask of somebody that if they don't do it, what do they lose? Not in a threatening not in a scare tactic, not in a fear mongering, but in an honest way. So let me give this example. If I were if I were a financial investor and you were my client, Jason, I might say, you know, Jason, given your age and the number of years you said you're going to continue to work and your income, if we can find a way for you to save just 1% more, by the time you retire, my estimates are that'll be an extra $100,000 in your bank account. And you're going to be happy about that. And you'll take action. You weren't even thinking about it before. I would be far more successful at getting people to do that if I said, Jason, given your age, years that you'll continue to work on your income, if we can't find a way for you to save just 1% more, by the time you retire, you'll have lost out on (laughs) $100,000. It's the same 100,000, but the loss versus the gain. Exactly. That gets people to take action. Yeah, and nobody's gonna come back and say, darn you, Brian, for scaring me into saving that 100 grand. What am I gonna do with it now? No, they're going to say thank you for honestly alerting me to what was on the line. So how can an auditor talk about, hey, look, here's the downside. If we don't take these actions, this is what could potentially happen. Again, we're not trying to fear, but but we're trying to. A lot of times, like a consultant might go into a company and say, oh, Jason, you know, we can do this. We can save you X millions of dollars. No, the right thing to say is, Jason, because you're not doing these things, you're losing 
X millions of dollars and we can help stop the bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. So think of it as opportunity loss and bring the loss side of it on it as well. And so kind of for a tie, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> a little bit of a tie in because usually when auditors will give recommendations, they kind of go through a, you know, criteria, condition, cause, consequence, and corrective action plan. So that consequence or effect is really kind of what we're talking here about on scarcity is what is it that they could lose or risk if that particular recommendation, let's say, is not implemented. Instead of, oh, it's going to be unicorns and fairies and everybody's going to be really happy, it's, you know, what are you going to lose uh, by, not, by not doing that? Yeah. And, and along the way, if they're asking the right questions to, if I'm an auditor and I did something simple like an inspection of a plant facility and there weren't guardrails somewhere, um, what is the loss? You know, OSHA comes in here. I've worked with firms before that were just like yours and I've seen them find $10,000 for not having your rails when it only cost you a few hundred dollars to put the rail up. So I'm talking about the downside, or I might come back to say, you know, Jason, as the owner of the facility, one of the number one things you said is important here is the safety of your employees. So maybe I want the consequence to focus more on, you know, what happens if somebody, there's not a rail and somebody gets hurt, because that means more to you than gambling about the, the OSHA uh, fine. But that's, that's really, it's just like a sale. I want to find out what are your hot buttons and I want to make sure that I talk to those because I have the best chance of you taking action at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So again, kind of find out what is important to them. Yes. Uh, but then again, focus on, I, I love that example that you gave about, you know, if we can't find a way for you to save another dollar, you know, you're going to lose out on a hundred thousand dollars in your retirement as opposed to if you save, you will get an extra 100,000. It's the same mess, it's, it's the same facts, but it's just that, that slight um, kind of twist on it that ends up actually getting people to, to take action. You know, which again, ultimately to kind of come full circle like we started off to begin with, right? We all have needs that we're trying to convey to people and ultimately we're trying to help people take some action uh, in, in a certain direction. And by using these principles of influence, we're developing those relationships. We're getting to that point where um, things actually happen without manipulation. Right? Yes. You know, something I guess I'd like the auditors to be thinking about when I worked with salespeople and when I worked for the insurance company, I did a lot of training with insurance agents. And I would always tell them up front, I am not here to tell you what your sales process should be or how you should actually do that sales process. And, and by no means would I tell an auditor how to audit. I don't know anything about that. I don't know their process. But what I would say is having listened to this, think about all the steps along the way and where are your opportunities to kind of inject these principles into the process to make it easier. No one principle they're going to use and go, oh my gosh, everybody did what I wanted because they liked me. But liking is the first step. And, mm -hmm. and it's a process. And, and I've always told agents too, when they'd say, what's the best way to close the deal? I'd say the first time you meet somebody, you look them in the eye and you shake their hand. Everything starts there. <laughs> and begin to look for places to put this in so that throughout your whole process, you're optimizing it. You're making it a better experience for your own people because things are going smoother and for your client too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Brian, thank you for uh, taking the time today. Cause like I said, it's um, this is one of those things that I've continued to try to work on myself. And even again, just sitting here and listening to you today 
reminded me of some things that I'm not doing the best at, <laughs> you know, areas that I can improve. But, but like I said, it's, it's, this is something that we all need as humans, you know, for both our day job, but also for the rest of our life as well. Um, you know, so again, if we think about, right, there's liking, reciprocity, uh, consensus, authority, consistency, and scarcity were kind of the six principles of influence um, that we talked about. Um, all highlighted in Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, Science, and Practice. He did introduce a seventh principle in the book, Persuasion, but if we decide to do another podcast, we can... We can get deeper that. into that one then at that point. If not, we'll have people here for three hours because I could totally geek out on this and just keep going. <laughs> so see, yeah, great. Scarcity because now you're like, oh, I didn't get that. I <laughs> now they got to come back. They got to come back. But yeah, so great, great reference is, um, you know, Bob's book on influence, you know, that you can pick up and go through and read. And Brian is a great resource as well. So maybe Brian, just, you know, if, if people want to contact you, how, how can they actually reach out to you or contact you if they're interested in, in learning more, um, getting their team trained or other things like that in some of the stuff that you're doing? Okay. Um, a couple of things. On, first, on the personal contact, um, if people want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I always accept connections. If you don't put a personal note like, hey, I was, I was listening to Jason's podcast, I'll probably send something back to say, how did you find me? I just like to understand where that traffic comes from. Yep. Um, but I pretty much don't say no to anybody because I've got LinkedIn courses and people are viewing those. And, and I, I think social media is about being social. And then the next thing is my blog or, or excuse me, my website, which has the blog component, influencepeople.biz. That's my website. Uh, if people go out there, they'll learn more about me and what I do. They'll see videos. I've been a guest now on more than a dozen podcasts, if that's their preferred method of, of learning. Um, but out there, they can see the things that we offer. I, I do single day and multiple day workshops where we dive in deep on, on these kind of things. And, and the last thing that I would mention is I'm, I'm working on a book, and that should be out sometime this summer. It'll be called Influence People, subtitle powerful everyday opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical. So all of those are, are uh, ways to reach out to me, to connect, to uh, find the resources that I have. Well, sweet. I'm going to look forward. I didn't know you were doing the book too. So I'm going to be looking forward to that here later this summer. So yeah, thank you. Can't, can't get enough of this kind of stuff myself. I'm a lifelong learner and just, yeah, I geek well, out on this kind of and stuff. If your audience, you're, you're listening on the podcast, can't see it, but you're continually smiling. You're incredibly oh, yeah. fantastic. And it's fun to work with people like that. Yeah, no, because I, I totally get off on this. I, I like to say that I like to bring, you know, psychology and mindfulness and some of this other stuff into a space that normally doesn't really talk about it because it is so important, you know, for us as humans, but also for us to be able to do, you know, what we need to do and really thrive in our lives. So, so Brian, thank you for taking the time uh, today. And yeah, hopefully we can have you on another episode and get a little deeper into persuasion. Uh, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around a little bit, um, but it's kind of at a deeper level. At least people can get started now uh, with influence. So uh, thanks again. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed having you on today. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. Have a great rest of your day and I'll catch you later on the next show. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy at ondemand.criskacademy.com. 
and that's C as in the letter C, riskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you also will have access to the video version of today's show. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.